As the world's brokenness grows and culture strays further and further from a Christian worldview, how are Christians called to navigate this brokenness and how do we respond to it? How do we need to think and act differently? Join us today as we discuss these questions with Catholic author Emily Chapman, who writes about this in her newest book, Letters to Myself from the End of the World. I'm Father Dave Pavonk and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka. I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville. And we're talking today about navigating the world's brokenness. I'm joined with our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. And we are pleased to welcome our special guest, uh, Emily Stimson Chapman. Emily is an award-winning Catholic author whose books include Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Resurrection and the Body, co-authored by Dr. Hahn, and These Beautiful Bones in Everyday Theology of the Body, and The Catholic Table, Finding Joy Where Food and Faith Meet. <sighs> Emily lives in Pittsburgh with her husband and three children, where she wrote Letters to Myself from the End of the World which we are discussing today. Welcome, it's great to have you with us. It is so good to be here. So this was a wonderful book of which you and I have been able to have the pleasure of talking about a lot, but just share with us how you got the idea and where did this come from? Just the, the idea I think was so creative. Well, I was I was under contract. I had been under contract for several years with Scott. <laughs> At Emmaus Road. <laughs> yes, Emmaus Road to write a book about our house renovation. But you, you know, we've been um, adopting babies at a rather yes, rapid yes, clip. Yes, Every yeah. time I come on here, there's a new baby. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. uh, so that kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And then when I finally sat down last spring, in the spring of 2020, to write the book, and I cleared my calendar and I was going to do it. Perfect timing. Yeah. <laughs> the world was going crazy. And it just didn't feel like the right time to write a book about my house renovation. Yeah. And there was so much I wanted to say to people, because I saw people questioning the church, questioning what it meant, questioning the country, questioning what justice was, yeah. questioning what mercy was, dealing with so much rage and anger. And the answers that a lot of them were coming up with were not healing answers. Yeah. They were not yeah. life-giving answers. Yeah. And I felt like I had answers to give, but I didn't want to type them out in 2,200 characters yeah, yeah, yeah. on Instagram. So I just started writing letters to myself, like Emily at 25, mm -hmm. when I was asking a lot of those questions or when I was going through a lot of the struggles that I saw people going through. And it was easy to talk to myself because it's easy to be compassionate to your past yeah, self. Yeah, to your past self. Um, but you can also be very bluntly honest. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great way, it was a writing device that I could use to both be very blunt and very honest but at the same time have great mercy because I know myself and what had led to me yeah. having those struggles. Uh, and I just kept writing. I think I ended up writing 45 That's so great. letters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a common theme of this is, is really, what is it, I mean, this is basic, but what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And you're really giving yourself it sounds weird to say yourself advice of 20 years of living that, but that's really so much of this, isn't it? Well, it is. And I think I think one of our greatest struggles as a church today is 
a lack of spiritual maturity. Um, and spiritual maturity isn't holiness, but it's mm -hmm. a step on the way to holiness. Mm -hmm. And so we, we're not able to think through the problems of the world. We're not able to think through the problems of our heart like adults yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a mature way, yeah. like in a way that's been soaked with sacraments in scripture. And so one of the best ways I think to show people, not like I'm the world's most mature Christian either, mm -hmm. but I'm better than I was 20 years ago. And if we could all say that, that would be great, right? <laughs> Some days it's a questionable, <laughs> but most days I'm better than I was 20 years ago. And yeah. so just being able to show like how I process these things and how I think through these things and how I in some ways parent myself, how I'm a yeah, mother. Yeah to myself when I need to be a mom to myself. Well, I, I knew you uh, when you were 20 years younger. You, you don't look a day older <laughs> than you did then, but I suspect you're a whole lot wiser and you have suffered uh, uh, greatly uh, in the interim. I'm, I'm struck by the title, At the End of the World. I mean, that's, that's sort of provocative, uh, apocalyptic on purpose. Uh, do you mean that as a metaphor? COVID brought the end of the world? The lockdown was like that? It's Depends on the day how I mean it. <laughs> Some days it's much more metaphorical because I do think there's been a shift in how people think about each other, how people treat each yeah. other, how we approach suffering and happiness and questions of faith that is radically different from where, you know, the Emily in 2000 right. I'm writing to. Yep. So the end of the world that most of us have known, and I think, yeah. you know, that is, but some days I'm also like, I don't know, it's Jesus. Be it. That's right. Where is he? It's, it's yeah. coming. Because it is, we are, there are very difficult, dark things happening in sure. the world right now. Yeah. And the world's brokenness is manifesting itself right. in such a powerful way. And so for a lot of people, even if it's not the end of the world, it feels like the right. end of the world. Right. You know, it's funny, I was here 31 years ago. We moved in the summer of 1990, and we had heard so much. We had visited, but never really, you know, experienced Steubenville. So uh, no sooner had we begun to unpack, I slipped away on Saturday night to go up to the campus here and to see a high school summer conference. And I had no preparation. I, I, this tent is packed with well over a thousand high school kids. And I had heard of the man, but I'd never seen Father Benedict Rochelle before. And as he's talking, he is just connecting with the kids with humor, with scripture. And then suddenly he goes on a very gentle rant where he's saying, in 50 years, most all of you will be here, but I most certainly won't be. And he said, I want to tell you that in 50 years, all of the institutions that we take for granted, the government, federal, state, local, and he just starts ticking, none of this will be here, only the Catholic Church. And I was standing next to the auxiliary bishop of uh, New York City, Bishop Vaughn. I look at him. It sounds rather dour, doesn't it? He said, apocalyptic, you know? <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, it, it just seemed like a disconnect, except that it didn't. It felt like it was something that he felt like he had to say. Mm -hmm. And now 31 years later, 32, whatever, you know, it's like, that's probably accurate. <laughs> I remember talking to Father Michael Scanlon about that a few days later, and he's like, you mark my word, you know, he's not wrong. And uh, I mean, it's the end of the world as we know it. It yeah. doesn't have to be the end of history altogether. Right. But uh, I mean, this, this world is being shaken and our lives are too. And you point to how hard it is to pursue holiness in the midst of injustice, how to, to grow in the church when there is so much division, as well as the nation. All of these things that 20 years ago we could just take for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the kingdom that cannot be shaken, which is why God shakes up everything else. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's yeah, and it's beautiful just to to watch, literally to watch you over twenty years to grow and to develop in in, in yeah. such a changing world. What what is what does Christian maturity look like then? If that's you're speaking to your young self and you're growing up and you're becoming more spiritually mature, what does that look like? What are elements of spiritual maturity? I mean, I think a lot of it is letting reason guide your emotions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> so our emotions always want to get out ahead, right. and you know, you're feeling angry at injustice, or you're feeling despairing over something that hasn't, some tragedy in your life, or you're you're grieving, you're anxious, and to go back to what you know. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know that God is faithful. You know that His will is perfect. You know that He is in control. You know that He has laid out certain behaviors that are life-giving for you. Like it's not God's like, hey, don't do this because yeah, it's yeah, fun yeah. for me. He wants us to have life, and that's yeah. how we have life. It, it would seem to me that uh, the, the working temptation you have in writing a book like this is condescension. You're going to patronize this kid who's 20 years younger and really sort of stupid, uh, and you're going <laughs> to shake her up. I mean, you know, I'm going to be very didactic. I'm going to dump on you and take notes. But it's not at all like that. It's refreshingly uh, free of of that kind of cant uh, and pomposity. So you pulled it off. I think a spiritual maturity also has some humility in it. And and a sense of humor, a kind of distance uh, from yourself. You see yourself and it's pretty laughable. uh, And uh, you you enjoy the cosmic joke at your own expense. But from a divine perspective, you can shed some light on this predicament that you were in 20 years before. It's so readable and it's so relatable, unlike almost every other example of self-help I've looked at. You know, this is older self-help, mm. you know. <laughs> and, and honest. You really know yourself well enough. You know, I remember you 20 years ago, too, in the grad classes as well as assisting us in the office and all of that. And I didn't think of you as being as immature as you think you, you, know, you, you see yourself now. But I, I can't help but wonder if everybody is going to be able to identify you know, because these aren't things that are peculiar to one temperament, yours, mm-hmm. you know. This is stuff that everybody struggles with. It is, and I think, I mean, that's the funny thing is all of you have known me for almost mm-hmm. as long. I was just a little bit older than, because I hadn't yet come to student Moved, That's yes, funny. Yes. That's also funny, yeah. So you guys all kind of remember Emily from 20 Can we ago. tell our stories now? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to write another book, Letters to Emily. <laughs> no, I think... One of the things that life has taught me, which I'm sure you guys have all learned as well, is how much we have in common. Like the struggles may manifest themselves differently in how we communicate them or how we talk about them or what instances cause them. But the struggle to be just, the struggle to be merciful, the struggle to bear wrongs patiently, the struggle to hope and trust and wait in a wait with joy. Mm-hmm. Like everybody goes through those. We are so alike. Our human nature, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what culture you're raised in. You're yeah. still a human being. I, I really have to descend from that to this extent because uh, one of the, the vices that you distance yourself from in the introduction, you identify anger as something you've struggled with. And I must confess, 20 years ago, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, you must have been really angry with me. Uh, Hot was. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, you were wonderfully <laughs> reticent and, and withdrawn. You were just taking notes and you had that lovely, winsome smile. But the one vice uh, you dissociate yourself from struck me as, as odd, sloth, because that is the characteristic sin of the modern age. And you have been blessedly spared. I mean, 
St. Thomas defines sloth as a kind of sadness in the face of an obvious spiritual good. He's offered us salvation, and it's as if we said, you know, is there anything better uh, on offer? Why that? It, it leaves us sort of cold, indifferent, but you've, you're not tempted by that, and that, that's quite extraordinary. I think God gives us all different natural virtues and strengths. And um, You have a natural hope. I have a, yeah, I guess I have a natural hope. I also have a choleric yeah. conviction that anything can be dealt with with yeah. enough prayer and nagging and work and, yeah. but, you know. The question is, do you, you said all those things beautifully and you said you have this hope and all that. Um, does this come back because you've looked back and you've seen, oh my gosh, God has been faithful. So, or is it, were you experiencing it in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the difficulty? I think it's both. Okay. Because I do, I have, you know, my, the way my story has unfolded, God has done some really beautiful things with waiting a long time to be married and then, yeah. you know, struggling with infertility and then this explosion of, you know, children. <laughs> children all of a sudden. And so it is on one hand easy to look back and say, look at how God was not just like God was using all of that mm. to bring us to where we are today. And God is, you know, he's, I would say he's the world's best chess player. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's able to see every move and outplay you. And yeah. he's so good at that. But even in the midst of that, I think one of the great blessings of my life was, in a sense, when I left the church um, and became very good friends with Protestants mm -hmm. who had a deep, active living relationship with Jesus. And so at 19, I really started learning what it meant sure. to have a relationship with Christ. And so that relationship then could sustain me. I knew him. And because I knew him, even when things were very dark, yeah. I held on to that hope and that trust that he was somehow going to make everything, everything right. And so that's a gift. That's not something I've done. That's not something, I don't know. That's just yeah. a gift of faith. Right. That's a gift of grace. Right. And you came to that over time. And that's one of the things that I appreciated is, the, the relationship with Christ, and then things began to come into place and build together, coming back to the church and mm -hmm. understanding the beauty of the sacraments. And all of these was a part of your, your maturing process. It was. And it's, you know, it's just like when I watch my children grow right now, you know, they, each, they master new things at different times. And then there's like this leap forward uh -huh. and then they kind of coast along and then there's a leap. And so I would say around the time the me I'm writing this book to that was a big leap time. So there was a big leap at 19 when I really met Christ. There was a big leap at 25 to 27 when I came back to the church and came to Steubenville. Um, there's been a big leap the past mm -hmm. few years as a mother. Yeah. So it, it's just how children grow. There's just, they call them the wonder, you know, sort of wonder weeks where they have these big, huge brain leaps and a lot's going on and it's really hard. And then you come out on the other side. <clears throat> and I think we all do that you know, with our growth of the Lord too. We, we have these struggles and these intense crucibles, and then we come out a little yeah. more mature. Uh, you know, people who write, uh, they, they have this thing called a suspension of disbelief. And I'm wondering if when you were that age, and if you had stumbled upon a collection of letters meant for you, uh, would you have resented that? Somebody telling you, you know, this is what's gonna happen laying out in prophetic fashion mm. every unfolding detail of your life. I mean, wouldn't you have perhaps said, hey, let me find out on my own. Let me be surprised. If you think too much about the premise of the book, it will get all bendy, kind of <laughs> yeah. like there's multiple dimensions and yeah. stuff. Because I'm not really writing to myself. I'm writing yes. about myself. Yeah. And I'm letting people see, yeah. like, 
I mean, I'm writing to the women on Instagram. I'm writing yeah. to my babysitters who come to my house and who I see them struggling. Yeah. I'm writing to the people on the evening news who I see oh, breaking. I see. I'm writing yeah. to strangers I've seen on Facebook who've walked away from the church because when I look at them, I see, see myself. I see yeah. all of us. Like I see the image of God. But, but you were not like that 20 years ago, were you? I mean, is this an acquired taste? <laughs> I mean, you have a confessional style that I wasn't aware of 20 years ago. But then I knew you more than 20 years ago, and yeah, I never thought the next president. Here's another meathead. You know? <laughs> Can we just stop on that point? Uh, another meathead. We'll uh, sit with that, and we'll come back. Uh, thanks for staying with us. When I was uh, getting ready for confirmation, uh, we were told uh, to choose a patron saint. And so I read the life of St. Augustine, uh, and I saw that this bishop and this uh, man who uh, probably has written the greatest um, uh, writings on forgiveness and on grace, I saw that when he was a kid, he was a juvenile delinquent. And when I saw St. Augustine was a juvenile delinquent and was one of the greatest doctors of the church, I thought, there's hope for me. So um, we, we, ended, we won't get totally into where we ended the last <laughs> segment, but uh, just this sense of, of a confessional and just kind of bearing your soul and, and Regis was just sharing about some of the things he, he wasn't aware of, and, and how did you wrestle with that, and how did you share that? And you know, I mean, 25 or 20 years ago, yeah. I would not have written that way. I would have approached things very academically, yeah. um, which if you look at a lot of my writing, even from the early 2000s, it's going to be much more didactic. I'm going to talk about the theology. I'm going to talk right. about the saints. I'm going to talk about church teaching. But over the years, I've learned that people... People remember the stories that incarnate the teachings yeah. more than they remember yeah. the like that's how they remember the teachings. And so if I want people to know Jesus and if I want them to know how he's going to be faithful to them and understand the teachings, then I have to be willing to be vulnerable yeah. myself and share how he's worked in my life. And I can't just be the teacher from on high imparting. It's like, mm. it's not like I'm St. Augustine, yeah. but you know, St. Augustine does his sure. confession and he yeah. really shares how God has worked in his life. And I think that level, uh, there's always going to be things I don't share. <laughs> you know, there's things that, that I hold back, but I think you do have to be vulnerable. Yeah, I, I mean, I think of uh, Lord Byron's observation. He said, I read the, I read the confessions because it taught me many new sins. <laughs> he would never have said that after coming back from the library reading the Summa. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's an impersonality to mm -hmm. Aquinas uh, and a passion in Augustine, which I think you have uh, imitated. And, and I, uh, that's one thing I appreciated was that you can see in the letters that you're writing, wrestling with issues that are not they're not abstract, but like the, the whole part that you do on justice. This again, remember the summer of 2020 and everything that was going on and, and you're wrestling with that and talking about that and sharing with that. That experience, what was that like? It was so hard because I've been, this is one of the things I've been thinking about with our world. Like we underestimate how broken the world is. Our world is so broken that even the very, <clears throat> the very best and the most beautiful things come with loss, mm -hmm. conversion, marriage, yeah. family, children, adoption. Like there's nothing good in this world 
that doesn't also in some way bring with it a sense like I've lost friends, I've lost this life, I've lost this identity, I've lost sometimes my employment. You know, there's, mm -hmm. we lose so much even when we receive something good and holy. And then, and then there is stuff that is not good and holy. And there is, we, we break everything as mm -hmm. men and women. And so it's hard not to be angry and it's hard not just sometimes want to burn everything down, at least if you're an right. Irish redhead, choleric. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's what we see. That's what you see when you turn on the news. That's what you've seen over the past year. People want to burn yeah. everything down. Right. Left, right, black, white, right. Catholic, non-Catholic. Yeah. Like, people want the world to burn yeah. because of its injustice. And Jesus didn't burn the world. He died for the world. Right. And so we have to figure out how, how we're called to respond to this brokenness. Yeah. Well, that, that's really a saving grace, I think, of the narrative. You acknowledge the world is a mess. It's broken. But you don't appoint yourself as the one to fix it. I mean, you have that humility, which I, I think is supposed to be peculiar to the Christian life. I mean, if, if you read Hamlet, he, he confesses that everything is out of joint, and somehow the gods have appointed me to set things right. And he makes a huge mess of it by the end of the play. You are spared that kind of pride, that kind of hubris. But you acknowledge, I mean, you have the presence of mind to see this is a catastrophe that we're living through. Something's got to be done. We need God. We have forgotten God. No, that's, you know, I worked in politics before I, I came here. I left a career in, in D.C. to come to Steubenville. And one of the reasons for that is that I just saw people spinning their wheels and having the same argument over and over again. And people, right. we're not God. We can't see what's going to actually fix things. So we can't, all the pieces. And people are like, let's solve poverty. And they're like, let's try this program. It's like they're throwing darts at a wall blind. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean you don't try to mitigate those problems. But those problems aren't solved unless the heart right. is healed. Right. And so it's people encountering Christ, people receiving his grace in the sacraments, people learning to die to themselves and love others sacrificially and to extend mercy. Like that's, it's those type of people who can make policies that will actually make the world better. Right. And so unless you fix the heart, right. the rest right. of the stuff is just. Yeah. One of my favorite parts is the letter where you say, assume brokenness. Yeah. yeah because we're all broken. It's just that we want to cover it up. You know, and I think back to you 20 years ago, and you were so omnicompetent as a grad student, as an administrative assistant, but you were also straitjacketed by graduate assignments as well as administrative duties. And, and now I see that accepting our brokenness enables us to enter into a real deep connection with other people who are broken. Yeah. You know, and, and so when you say people want to burn things down, you're right, people want to break things. But that's precisely because they can't accept or acknowledge their own brokenness. And, and you, one of the letters that was just on that as well that you write is that the church is going to let you down. I mean, the institution, the yeah. people are going to let you down, and politics is going to let you down. And just speak to the, yeah, the heartbrokenness in that, and how do you wrestle with that, and how do you still believe in the church that has made mistakes, and individuals in the church, priests that have made mistakes, and. You're wrestling with that and coming out. One of the things I love is you come out on the other side in this. It's not the end of the story. No, it's not all deconstruction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do, it's, I have come to just expect disappointment because I know that everyone is broken and the church is made up of broken men and women. And I put a nice line in there about friars I trust. We appreciate for you. That. Yeah, I threw that in for you. But it, it is when you see that everyone is broken, you stop putting people on pedestals. I don't look 
for a bishop or a pope or a president or a priest to or a be Supreme my favorite, or a Everything. Supreme right, Court right, justice right. to be my savior, or professor. <laughs> Present <laughs> company included. Right. I worked in his house with him for too long. To <laughs> Scott in the morning with that's always a but, but, but you know it's you just have to expect the brokenness in humanity and that makes it easier to respond to compa with compassion to people. Yeah. So. There there is a sense, however, if you're plugged in uh, with with God and you're wedded to His church, His bride, you know that the culture war has already been won. The war's over. It's just a series of mopping up exercises. We've got to persuade the enemy to lay down his arms. But we've won. The cross has achieved that definitive victory. That gives you, I think, a certain buoyancy, a oh, certain optimism over the short haul. I don't know. I mean, I, it has been won. Obviously, Jesus has won the ultimate battle. But man, it's like <laughs> World running, War One out there, the though, right battle. now. He's it's, won the he's ultimate, won the ultimate battle. battle right. But the, the bloodshed and right. the heartache and the... Yeah. I think it almost can feel minimizing when we say, well, he's won, the victory is secure, and it's true. No, no, it doesn't breathe. But it can't yeah, induce a kind of smugness, a complacency. Right, but it's but so I don't intend that. Rather, hope, the sense that my life has been rescued by Jesus. So whatever comes, we can handle it together. I know that no matter what, Jesus is going to somehow, all of this will be worth it. Like, I yeah. have the absolute you confidence in your own in life. that. For no. everybody, yeah. like Jesus is. If, if an individual if, chooses, as long as they yeah, choose yeah. him, See, that's yeah. If they choose that's, him, that's right. so at the if. end, like I know God is working in every circumstance to give every single person the absolute maximum opportunity to choose Him, and those who do choose Him, at the end, will somehow look back and mm -hmm. say, "He was there. That was beautiful." Yeah, like you totally yeah. knew it. Like I can look back on the past 20 years and say, oh, God totally knew what he was doing through those, yeah. the single years and the infertility. I believe that all of us who stand with Christ at the end of days will look back and say, okay, you were right and I was wrong. Good job. I'm glad. I think yeah. he answers our prayers. We'll talk about that a little bit. But When you said that, you induced dissent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, because I agree at the surface level yeah. that the battle's won, you know, and Kuhlmann's distinction between, you know, D-Day and V-E Day. Right, you know, right. He's invaded, it's a mop-up operation. But it, it, it's a theological cl cliche that I think would be best respectfully retired because it isn't a mop-up operation because what we're mopping up is a mess that is continually yeah. being made more and more. And I think what we have to do is go back and recognize that what Jesus accomplished in his suffering and death was not to do away with suffering and right, death. Right, right. It was to commandeer it. Right. Mm -hmm. He commandeered suffering and death, yeah. you know, so that when we ask the question, why would God allow this or that? You know, the hardest question is, why would God allow Good Friday? Yeah. The single greatest sin ever committed against the Almighty, and yet it's the single greatest grace as well. He is redeeming his executioners you know, which is beyond right. counterintuitive. Yeah. It's beyond mop-up. And so it's not just transforming bread and wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's transforming our sufferings, our anxieties, our sadness. As long as we turn and face them honestly and humbly, as you do in the book, once you could admit high anxiety, sadness, anger, rage, depression, anorexia, or whatever, then you can lay them on the altar. And then Christ can transform that. And I, I just feel as though what we can expect is not for things to get better and better every day in every way, you know, but 
for God to continue to transform the sins of the world into sources and wellsprings of salvation yeah. and our own suffering and anxiety. And, and this, I think, gets us really close to the heart of St. Augustine. This is realism. Yeah. And this is why we're not afraid to tell our stories, warts and all, and not just the way it was 20 years ago, but we still have these weaknesses and anxieties now. And so we still have a, a lot to lay upon the altar when it comes to... No, no, Scott, I, you express with much greater eloquence than I could have summoned the point that I was trying to make. When we look upon the pierced and crucified Jesus, whom we put there by our sins, but who arrived on his own because of an incomprehensible depth of love, we are to see that grotesquery in the perspective of Easter Sunday. Because with the resurrection, despair and despondency were destroyed. Amen. Yeah. Vanquished for all time. I've been outdone in eloquence there. But I think it would be important for you that there, there is a sense of joy in what you're writing as well. So it's not just woe and horrible, and but yes, the church is broken, but you also spend some time talking about the beauty that exists in her and the beauty in, in relationships and some of the people that you've encountered, that that's been a part of your story as well. It's not just, you know, it's not let it burn, but it's also that there's something beautiful here. There is, and there's the Eucharist, and there are the saints, and I think the saints show us the best way to walk through the mess. Um, it's so easy today to be outraged. And it's easy to vent that outrage on social media, in conversations with people. Um, the world is trying to cultivate our outrage. Everything right. wants us Absolutely. to be outraged. Every and headline, true. Outrage doesn't save the world. Like the world doesn't need us to be outraged. It needs us to be holy. It needs us to be loving. It needs us to be merciful. It needs us to know that Jesus is like when we are in our suffering, it's not just we, it's not just Easter Sunday to look forward to, but Jesus is with us right now. We never right, suffer right. alone. There's such a deep desperation and loneliness in our culture, mm -hmm. and Jesus is with us. Very in, quickly, and maybe throw your curveball. One of the yeah. saints that you mentioned is there one that you just want to mention that's been kind of a source of inspiration for you? I mean, I talk, I talk a lot about Catherine of Siena and Hildegard of Bingen. Yeah. Hildegard is particularly wonderful because she is a choleric, melancholic. I was say like <laughs> <laughs> what about that, right? What, what about her gave you inspiration? She was such a pill, man. I struggled to write about her. We talked about this when we did a show on her because she was always led by her. She had a temper. She wanted to control things. She wanted to make right. things happen. And she did make a lot happen. Um, but it was amazing to watch her over the course of her 80 years. You know, Catherine like was five years old and doing Hail Marys on the <laughs> stairs. But Hildegard really was the slow working of grace in her soul that made yeah. her holy. And it gives personally a lot of hope to think that maybe by the time I'm 80, someone But you know, but when you gentle. consider, say, the backdrop of Catherine's life, the world that she inhabited, it was a bloody mess. It was just a calamity. Half of Italy, half of Europe was wiped out by this plague. Uh, and most of her, her family was wiped out. I mean, her twin sister doesn't survive. Uh, and the, the extraordinary thing is that she does get angry there is a righteous indignation. She uses the metaphor of the lion bellowing to awaken the dead cubs. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. She spoke truth to power. I mean, she wasn't this pious wallflower, and, and, and I, and even I, though she may have been anorexic. And I think you deal with that, the, the wrestling with that. So uh, we'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us. One of the greatest gifts I've been given in becoming a spiritual director through Franciscan University School of Spiritual Direction 
is the ability to be able to witness um, and walk with someone as they're discovering their own unique and unrepeatable story, the story that God's written for them since the beginning of their creation, by pointing out the grace where God is, asking them some good questions, you really get to watch and discover someone's story unfolding. And it's just a beautiful thing to be able to witness them see God in their lives and see themselves through God's eyes. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we record here in the ComArt studio at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment, members of our theology faculty, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn, and I are discussing navigating the world's brokenness with Emily Stimson Chapman. Uh, Emily, one of the things that you spend quite a bit of time just discussing and kind of wrestling with is uh, spiritual motherhood and being a mother and, and being a woman. And, and I must say, I, I would have loved to read this 20 years ago, you know, with some of the newly married couples that I've worked with over the years and the young women, it was just insightful for me. So maybe share some of your experience with that and, and how you wrestled with that. Sure. Well, you know, I, one of my big questions when I was first coming back into the church, something that I've been struggling with for years, was what did it mean to be a woman? Because the culture throws so many different things at us. You know, a woman is, you know, sexy. A woman is thin. A woman yeah. is, you know, not help, not a helpmate, but yeah. not a leader. A woman right. should be Which all the different, right. yeah, all the different adjectives you want to throw at it. And I didn't know what I was supposed to be because <laughs> yeah. I, I was sexy was not my vibe. <laughs> um, I was not uh, really a gentle person in the way that I thought of gentleness, not right. the way the church talks about gentleness. I was not meek in the sense that I thought about meekness, not the way the church right, talks right. about meekness. Uh, and I, I didn't know. I didn't know where I fit in, especially as the years went on and I was still single. And I was like, well, am I a mother? Am I supposed to be at home? But I'm not married, so mm -hmm. how do I do this? I can't just go propose to a guy on the street corner and like, Good choice. hey, let's get married so I can do what these women are supposed to do. So I had to really dive deep into the church's teachings. And it was through the writings of John Paul II and St. Edith Stein that I found the church's teachings on the feminine genius, which really is spiritual motherhood. Mm -hmm. And that, John Paul II says, is, is what it means to be a woman. And the, just like the physical reveals the spiritual mm -hmm. truths, you know, mm -hmm. that we live in a world where we learn about the spiritual truths and reality through the physical. A woman's body, which is oriented towards motherhood, points us to understanding that women are oriented mm. towards motherhood. And that doesn't mean necessarily bearing children, but it means being nurturing and nourishing life and seeing the dignity of the person, the particular dignity, and mm. helping the person to both see it in themselves and live it. Um, and that, you know, we have, a, we have a lack of women doing that in the culture today, and I think that's one of the... Yeah. One of the great, one of the reasons we're struggling so much as, as a culture is because women are not being the mothers we're made to be. Yeah, that's such a beautiful image. And, and you and I have obviously talked a lot about this already, but just as you said that, I saw a, you know, a little boy standing in front of his mother and, and him being 
loved and scolded and, and encouraged and, and yeah. so much what that is to your heart. And it's what your heart's always been, right? Yeah, being, being a mother. No, it is. And it's, you know, my, I think one of the great joys I find in motherhood now is that I had decades to think about its deeper, mm -hmm. deeper meaning and to work on living that in relationship to other people. So I couldn't be a mother to a child, but I could be a mother to my friends. I could right. be a mother to my neighbors. I could be a mother to my nieces and nephews. I could be a mother to my sisters, just in terms of really seeing them. Yeah. And that I think is one of, when we talk about the brokenness in our culture, people aren't being seen, seen. Yeah. like the, their dignity. We're, be, we're lumping people into groups and classes and you know, we label them, yeah, we dismiss yeah. them. We don't see them. and. I think that's it's a real lack. Women are spending too much time looking at ourselves. We're all spending too much time mm -hmm. looking at ourselves and not looking at the person in front of us and loving them as they need to be loved, not as an emotion, but as an action that responds yeah. to their deepest needs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of uh, C.S. Lewis's insights is that in relation to God, we are all feminine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the universe of being as having been created stands in relation to creator, logos, God. And what we see today, I think, is a terrible flight from femininity, uh, from the feminine. And that, I mean, the instinct to be nurturing, giving, uh, is consubstantial with being a woman, biologically a woman. And yet to be in flight from that is really a kind of self-hatred, a self-destructive impulse, that if you don't get hold of it, if, if grace doesn't doesn't somehow overcome it for you, uh, you're gonna you're gonna create a great deal of mischief for yourself and for others, and we see that in 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 all of the wreckage of the culture, women who don't want to be women. But and I think men, they don't even understand what it means to be women because they've been told you can't be. They hear you're called to be a mother, and they think, oh, I'm supposed to not use my intelligence. I'm not right, supposed to right. use my gifts, but I like math. I don't want right. to, I'm, I'm not interested in literature right. or I like yeah. fixing cars. Why, why do right. I want to keep a house? And that's okay. Yes. And what the church says is that everything you do, you do as a woman. Yeah. And so if you love, if you love math and you want to be an engineer, awesome. God made, gave you a mind to be an engineer, yeah. but you're an engineer as a woman. You're always doing those things as that's a woman. So and so it's, Con sorting out all the wheat in the chafe, which I try to do a bit right, in there, right. between what people hear when you say you're called to be a mother and what the church yeah, means yeah, when she yeah. says you're called to yeah. be a mother, because they're very different things. One of the most perceptive diagnoses in the letters is how the virtual is not real. Uh, yeah. Because when we hear virtual reality, we don't recognize it for the oxymoron that it is. You know, uh, the virtue is not the virtual is not real, but it, it goes back to reality TV. It goes back to you know it, it comes forward to Instagram and that kind of thing. Practically all of the models out there for women, but it's just as true for men. Men don't have models. They're virtual models. They're you know actors or they're caricatures. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and so with a kind of laser beam precision, you gently put your finger on something, but it really points to the need in the church as well as the world for role modeling. But even that is a cliche because what it really comes down to is mothering, not just the biological, but likewise fathering, and not just the physical but the, the interpersonal, the experience, you know. And uh, I must admit that when I think about writing letters to myself 20 years ago, you know, it's a terrifying thing because 
the perfectionism that I had as a father, as a paternal leader, the anxiety. You know, I, I think now that fatherhood is non-anxious leadership. You know, leadership can be very anxious, and when it is, it, it just it, it creates all kinds of consternation in the people you're trying to lead. You know, and I would say that over the course of years, only when you submit to the Lordship of Christ, you're still faltering as you're doing it, but you're learning that, okay, cast your anxieties upon Him. And in the process, virtual reality gives way to reality. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, mucky enough, you know, but, but it's not unreal. I, I think that for increasing numbers of people, it hasn't happened. They're still seeking Absolutely. refuge in an unreal world, cyberspace. I mean, the lockdown uh, sort of reinforced that. And it's the triumph of postmodernism because the computer of uh, the iPhone is really the perfect instrument of postmodernism because it levels everything. I mean, what you see on the internet is neither good nor bad, right nor wrong, true nor false, ephemeral nor enduring, important or trivial. It's simply there. Everything has the same weight. And people who live like that are frightening. I mean, you see, you see the fallout from it if you go to a restaurant and here is a couple and they're each looking at their iPhone or later when they're in bed, they're watching porn separately in the same bed. I mean, this is not real. This is not human. I mean, never mind grace. At the level of, of nature, this is, this is hideous. This, this is grace. diseased. And some of the things you, you share with that I thought w was insightful with that, and that even what you just said, so much of what you said in the world today is shocking to hear, you know, to be an engineer from a woman's perspective, where we, we want to, or the culture wants to make everything the same and, and no distinction. But I think you, you elevate, you, you make more beautiful and more understanding, for me as the reader, what it is to be a woman and what it is to be a mother. And, there was a dignity to about it that, that I just think gets lost in our culture today. I think, I mean, when I think about, like, this book, all of my books, they are acts of motherhood for mm -hmm. me. Like, I'm trying to be a mother, gently teaching my children truth. Like, if you look at, you know, in, in scriptures, the mother is, is often one of the teachers of the tr mm -hmm. truth, of the t first teacher mm -hmm. in the virtues. So, like, how we model it. And I do this on social media, and I love... I love Instagram. <laughs> I wouldn't have my babies without social media. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be an actual yeah. mother without social media. Yeah. Um, I live in a sort of the isolation that a lot of young moms live in right now. You know, I'm at home with my kids. It's not in Steubenville. Steubenville is its own wonderful place. But there's no other women in my neighborhood. They're all right. in the office. So I'm yeah. alone all day without a car with small children. Yeah. And if I didn't have social media, right. Right. if I didn't have that connection, You'd I would perish. probably be in a mental institution right now. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's finding out how do we use it in truthful and life-giving right. ways. Right. Right. And that doesn't mean posting every thought. It doesn't mean getting into every debate. Yeah. It doesn't mean like posting endless pictures of myself. But how do I establish real connections with people and share truth and do it in an authentic way. Yeah. And so it's, but that too is an act of motherhood. Like it's, everything can be an act of motherhood when you approach it with a desire to lead people to a deeper understanding of their dignity and a deeper love for Christ. And, and I pay attention to what you post, not everything. <laughs> not the recipes everything. you cook not, I cook, but not <laughs> I everything. But when I think about it, the word that came to just as you were sharing is honest. You're honest. You, you, you share not just the great days and not just the, 
beauty tips in this, but the, the, the skincare. Are you really watching me for the skincare? Pretty much. <laughs> but 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 again, there's an honesty about that, and that's one of the things that I object to so so strongly to Facebook and Instagram and social media is is that you create a world that's not real. And if this is what the young moms are looking at, that's what I have to be. Then they turn away from that. I, I always joke. Who, whoever spent 30 minutes with Facebook or Instagram walked about more happy, you know, after experiencing that. I think you and you do it in this book. You're honest, but you're, there's a sense of hope. There's a sense of, I can do this when you read and when you look at your Instagram as well. Which I think is what, <clears throat> it's what a good mother does. It's what a good father does. Like you, you help your children see the world as it is. You help them see who they're called to be. You help them know that God is in charge of it all. And you do that with your children. You do that with your friends. You do that with, you know, mm -hmm. your readers or yeah. however it works mm -hmm. out. Um, but it's knowing who you are first. And I think so many people don't know who they are. They don't know what it means to be the image of God. They don't know right. what it means to yeah. be a man. They don't know what it means to be a woman. Until you figure those things out, you can't be that for other people. Right. Right. And that's what the, that is the, I think, one of the fundamental crises uh, right now is just what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. I mean, not just male, what does it mean to right. be human? Because we want to separate those things. And again, you, you provide the 20-year-old somebody a sense of inspiration that, that this is a journey, this is a process, I can actually do this. Yeah, and it doesn't happen overnight. I no, mean, no. We, it's a, we all still go to confession. Like all of us here have been walking with Christ for decades yeah, and you're still stumbling and you're still... <laughs> <laughs> well, you emphasize that in confession too and prayer and that sort of thing. It comes back to the fact that Jesus Christ created us. He gave us freedom, so he allowed us to fall, but he redeems us. And he doesn't just redeem us by saying, okay, from this point on, you better stop sinning. Mm -hmm. no. He's there in the confessional. He's there in the mass. He's there on our brokenness. You know, and I think that, you know, Christ didn't set the world on the fire. He died for the world. And yet there is a sense in which he said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword and how I wish that the world was ablaze, you know. But it's that kind of fire that causes Clopas to say, did not our hearts burn within us? And that's what I think your, your readers are going to pick up. That right now, you're not rejecting the self of 20 years ago. You're loving yourself with words of affirmation, but also instructive lessons that, you know, can be hard at times. But uh, I think this is going to reach an immense amount of people who are going to be able to accept their brokenness, but in Christ. Yeah. Of course, the pity is that we live in an age when nobody's reading a post-literate age. Except well, Instagram. Except, well, and that's one of the reasons why I'm on Instagram. And that, why do you think the letters are so short? <laughs> They're just a little bit longer that's, than Instagram posts. Right. I mean, and I get it. Scary. I have three children, three and under. I can write, I can barely write books. I can't hardly read them so either. I'm spending an hour each day spending reading and it's not happening. I, I don't even know what I did. I, there was a lot of children and there was a lot of poop and there was, I, there was a lot of cooking. You know, it's, yeah. um, and then I'm trying to like send off books and it's, it's people are so overwhelmed. And right, so I think right. it's a question of how do we use, how do we adapt mediums to try to reach people where they are and then draw them into the book or to the Bible study. That's like another idea yeah. for another day. <laughs> exactly there. <laughs> Up next, our panel and our guest will share our final thoughts in navigating the world's brokenness. Please stay with us. My own experience with growth in the spiritual life is that it's um, very much tied to death to self. And what I think is interesting about dying to yourself is that it's the paradox of the Christian life. 
that when you die to yourself, it's not going to kill you. It's actually going to bring more life and more love. So for example, in my vocation as um, a married woman and in my family, when I die to my own will uh, for the good of the ones I love, I actually create more life and love in my family. And so it's true with God too, as I bend to his will, as I surrender to him, I let him have the throne of my heart. More life, more love from God flourishes and my spiritual life grows. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment, so read just your final thoughts. Yeah, no, I'd be delighted. This is a, a terrific book. It's the best of, of the batch, and I'm so grateful that uh, you wrote it. Uh, but let me say something. I mean, I don't want this to sound caviling, uh, but this is sort of confessional uh, in the style in which you wrote the book. So uh, let me tell you, I was annoyed uh, at first reading the endorsements because what struck me was, with the exception of yourself, they were all women. Well, what's Thank going on here? <laughs> I mean, were there no men you couldn't find to promote the book? I mean, I would have been delighted to, to say something pleasant about it. But, but also, it, it implied that this is only meant for women. And I don't think you intended that, because otherwise you've cut out half your, your audience, and there goes part of uh, the royalties. Uh, and when I read women authors uh, like Flannery O'Connor or Jane Austen or P.D. James, I don't think of them as women. I think of them as writers who appeal across the board, across uh, the, the spectrum. You do that. Your book appeals to everybody. It's not, it's not niche, niche uh, genre literature. It, it has a universality. And I don't know how you pulled that off, that sleight of hand, but I commend you for it. It has an immediacy of appeal to everyone, anyone who's interested in life, living life to the fullest. And when you come away having read it, you are more inclined, I think, to live a more intense and recollected and intentional life. And uh, I congratulate you uh, for that. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Scott. And I thank you, not only for writing it, but for allowing us at Emmaus Road to publish this. And, you know, to Regis's point, when you write for women, you sell books, because men don't buy, or if they do, they don't read. But I Nor would say- Nor do they say, buy from women. But I would say this, men ought to read this, yeah. echoing what you just said. Because it, it does not have that kind of one-sided feminine sense. It really does address the human condition. Uh, and I plan to get this for my daughter. I only have Hannah, and you know her well. And I think she's going to really, really appreciate this. But, but more to the point, I want to say you ought to do this again. Not, not next year, but you ought to think about um, where you are now and in 20 years, you know, because... We're in our 60s now, and when Kimberly is writing and reflecting, I realize that she has diamonds, whereas before she had pearls. And I would also say this, that when you 
right, you also touch the heart of people at every point along the journey. Not just women, but men. Not just women in their 20s, but men in their 40s or 60s as well. And this is a gift. Uh, This is not something that just uh, you worked on and you acquired. I remember reading your papers back in the aughts when you were an MA student and thinking, she is gifted, you know, but you took it from writing objective theological truth to writing subjective and profound theological truth. And I would also say this, that I've known your husband, Chris, a lot longer than I knew you, and I had him in graduate courses, and you are blessed. He is such an anchor. He is such a foundation. And together, the two of you have, you know, not only produced a, a beautiful family, but a really fruitful apostolate. I mean, you really are fruitful apostles, and I'm grateful to God to be able to partner with you and with Chris. So, God bless you. <laughs> Thank you, Sky. And final thoughts? Well, I think it's this book covers so many different topics, and so it's hard always to dive deep into it in 45 minutes. You know, I wrote it over the course of like seven months, actually, I think last year. Um, and so whenever people ask me to sum it up, I'm like, why do you read the book? <laughs> but I've been thinking so much about living in a fatherless and motherless age and that crisis and the emptiness we all feel where we, we don't feel necessarily like we can trust our bishop. We don't feel like we can trust our president. We don't feel a lot of people don't feel like they can trust the pope. People don't feel like they can trust leaders of corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, people come from broken families and don't trust their own mothers and mm-hmm. fathers. And when you live in a fatherless age, people tend to run to the extremes. So they go extreme anti-whatever or extreme pro-whatever. They look for the strongest voices they can find. And sometimes the strongest voices they can find are their own emotions, and they let the emotions run away with them. And so when I talk about spiritual maturity, it's coming back to the heart of the church Mm -hmm. and listening to the voice of Christ and listening to the voices of the saints. And I mean, I'm just passing on advice from people smarter than me. <laughs> you know, I'm passing on the advice of St. Francis de Sales and Catherine of Siena and Edith Stein in there. I'm just repackaging it for, for people in our, current, in our current culture. But that's, that's when I talk about spiritual maturity, that's what it is. It's going back to the people who are mothers and who are fathers and letting them form us so that we can be the mothers and fathers that God wants us to be, not led by our emotions, not led by our passions. Um, but with you know reason holding holding the reins, and that's mm-hmm. I think that if we could do that, then you see the world change. It's not going to be elections. It's yeah, not yeah. going to be, you know. And, and having laws, known you for a little while as well, that that yeah, I think you used the word firecracker for yourself one time. <laughs> so that person that's able to, in the midst of the craziness, to stop and to be still and to be quiet, I think is is this is the fruit and the inspiration of that of, of your ability to do that. Uh, If you would like to learn more about today's topic, we have an article that was written by Emily. Uh, It's a handout. I believe it's one of the letters. It's the the letter on the church, yeah. Beautiful. One of the letters from Letters to Myself from the End of the World, written by Emily. It's yours free if you would simply go online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see uh, at the bottom of the screen. Um, As I read this, uh, one of the things that it, it my guess is probably everybody, if I were to write a book like this, what would I say? And, and that was really where I found myself, is, is what would I want to say to myself, and what are the things that I've learned? And, and then the other part, and actually saying the endorsement is, 
uh, I look forward to, as you alluded, 20 years from now. What are you going to say to yourself? But then also, what would I want to say to myself 20 years from now? So just the whole idea I thought was very inspirational. But what I was struck with was uh, a, a theme of mine that I love, and that is metanoia, is, is that the spiritual life is a process, and it's a journey. And, and at, at a photo of you at 20 years old, when you were struggling and wrestling and, and, and just beginning to discover who Jesus is but have stepped away from the church is not the person that you are when you were 25 than when you were 30, that you were 35, and we'll just stop there. Uh, <laughs> but but this, this, this process of journey, and, and it just speaks to the Lord's, the Lord's patience, His kindness, His goodness, um, that He's provided you everything you need with the saints and with mm -hmm. the sacraments and with the catechism and the scriptures and everything you need to become the person that the Lord wants you to be. And I think that that's the beauty of this book is that, is that the Lord has done that for each of us. He's provided that for you. He's provided that for us. And, and this journey that you allowed us to have a glimpse in, you just let us to see that. And it was beautiful. It was humble. Uh, it was vulnerable, so I want to thank you for being able to, for, for producing this book and then letting us take a look at it. Thank you. We ask the Lord's blessing on us, and, and that this is all of our invitation, is that the Lord is patient, and He is kind, and He has called us to Himself, and He has given us everything available. So we pray for everybody on the journey uh, that they are now on, trusting that the Lord's providence and His care for them. So we close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, You have called each one of us by name, uh, you know us, you see us, you are patient with us, you are kind, and you provide us everything necessary to be the man of God that you've called us to be, the woman of God that you've called us to be, the mother, the father, the child, the son, the daughter, the brother, the sister. I pray your grace would continue to animate us, that we would be who you desire us to be. Jesus, I pray particularly for the member who is watching uh, today, who is struggling most, that your grace would be present to them, mm -hmm. and that you would lift them out, you would inspire them, you'd fill them with hope, that they would journey with you. Ask Almighty God to pour his blessings on you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank Amen. you so much, Emily. God bless you. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com where you can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents. Or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800-783-6447.